I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Meg Cabot was born in Bloomington, Indiana during the Chinese astrological year of the Fire Horse, a notoriously unlucky sign. Her 80-plus books for both adults and tweens and teens have included multiple number one New York Times bestsellers, and she has sold over 25 million copies of her books worldwide. Her Princess Diaries series has been published in more than 38 countries, and Disney made them into two hit films. Meg's numerous other award-winning books include the Mediator series, the Heather Wells Mystery series, and Avalon High, the latter of which was made into a film for Disney Channel as well. Meg Cabot currently lives in Key West with her husband and various cats. Meg, welcome to The Literary Life. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I, I think the last time that I saw you, you had sort of recently moved to Key West, if I'm not mistaken. It was around 2014, 2015. Yeah, well, I've been splitting my time um, between New York City and Key West since about 2004. So I've been spending more and more time in Key West because we got a, a Key West cat. So it's very hard to travel with a Key West cat. So we've got to stay there and make sure she has everything she wants. And mostly what she wants is to be outside, which you can't let them do when they're in New York. Is so. it one of the Hemingway cats? Oh, gosh, I wish. No, no, this is just a rando that showed up. 
I think the reason why I brought that up is because the new book, which has no judgments, has to do something with your experiences that you had in the last you know, thing that, that all of us here in South Florida always fear, which is a hurricane. Yes, hurricane. So talk a little yeah. bit about the, the genesis of No Judgments. Well, the inspiration for No Judgments was actually Hurricane Irma, which I think if anyone who lived in South Florida will remember who experienced that uh, was a really large hurricane that was bearing down on us, but they couldn't quite figure out the track. So every day when you would wake up, it was either going to Miami or it was going to Key West, which is a difference of about 150 miles. And um, there had just been a hurricane in Texas, Hurricane Harvey, that had basically made it so there was really no gas in South Florida. There was a huge gas shortage. So um, that also made a difference whether or not you're going to evacuate because if you lived in Key West, which is an island that you can only, it's really on the tip of the Florida Keys and you can only leave it by driving a very um, slim highway. (laughs) It's a two lane highway and you can really only leave it by car or by plane. Um, We we were pretty confident that that hurricane wasn't going to come to us, Hurricane Irmas, because we went to bed one night and the newscasters are saying, no, nope, it's going to Miami. You guys are going to be fine. So we didn't gas up and we uh, thought we were pretty confident we were going to be okay. And we woke up the next morning and they're like, nope, it's coming to Key West. <laughs> All you people who didn't evacuate, you're stuck there. And so we thought, well, we'll be okay. And we have a big generator and we'd stocked up on the essentials, which for us was like Doritos. <laughs> and I think for everyone here, Doritos is the essential. Exactly. Going back to the cat, we we had gotten this cat who had um, something called stomatitis, which is when a cat actually becomes allergic to its own teeth. So the cat was very sick and was going to have to have surgery. So we're like, well, we'll be fine. Well, this hurricane was huge. It was. It turned out to be humongous, and it knocked out. It actually knocked out the road to to get out of the Keys, and a lot of people who had evacuate evacuated were unable to get back. Um, Fortunately, we hadn't, so we we were okay. But people all up and down the Keys had lost their homes. It QS was right, fine. It hit right, yeah, in it the hit middle. right in the middle of the Keys, which was terrible. We had our generator though, so we were fine. But people lost; they lost their internet. They lost, of course, their electricity. Um, but we actually had, since we had the we had the generator, we had power, and we also had something that a lot of people did not have, which is very old fashioned. It was a landline, so we actually could call all of our relatives and let them know that we were fine. And people found out on the island that we had this miraculous thing and they started coming, showing up at our house asking if they could use our phone. And one of the people who showed up at our house was a young lady named Britt who was kind of, we kind of knew through another acquaintance. And of course, everybody who was coming up to our house to use the phone, I could hear their conversations, which as a writer, you were taught at an early age by whatever writer god there is to eavesdrop on everyone. So I I mean, I didn't mean to, but I eavesdropped on her conversation. And what her conversation was, it was with her mom. She called her mom, I think, in North Carolina and was like, Mom, um, can you post on Facebook that if there's anybody who's evacuated from Key West and they're separated from their pets, like they left their pets behind, can you post on Facebook that um, – I will go and break into their house and I will feed their pets and I will, I'll let them out and I'll walk the dogs and, and, um, just have them call, you know, this number, which was my number (laughs) and, um, you know, give, give their address. And I was afterwards, of course I came up to her and I was like, wait a minute. 
people left their pets behind? Is that a thing that happens? Because I had no idea that this was something that happened. And she was like, yeah, um, sometimes, you know, we don't know what people's lives are like. Um, this was the first hurricane you really went through. This was the first bad one. I've yeah. been through multiple small ones, which is why I thought this one was going to be no big deal. And so, of course, I said some salty things about these people who left their pets. And she was like, look, no judgments. We can't judge these people because if we do, they're not going to call and then their pets will not make it. And so then I was like, oh, my God, this is a book. This is, I'm going to write a book about this girl, how she went around and saved all these pets because she did every day. She would show up and she'd get the messages from her mom about these people who had left their pets and she had like, she had a little axe and she had those uh, jaws of life to break people's, I guess, locks off the back gates and stuff. And she actually went in and broke into people's houses and she saved dozens of pets, fed them. She got donations of pet food from just people. I'm not saying that she broke into maybe the grocery store and stole pet food. No, she totally didn't do that. Um, But that was great. So that was the genesis of this book, No Judgments. It was about like people who didn't evacuate, which was probably... Not good judgment on their part, but it was, they all had personal reasons. Um, and then people who had left their pets behind for other reasons that we can't judge. But there is the, the Meg Cabot special sauce in here. Oh, dear goodness. And what is that? <laughs> um, you know, it's a romance. So the young lady whose name is Brett actually in real life has a great boyfriend and, you know, <laughs> they're engaged and stuff. But I thought, wouldn't it be great if I gave, you know, this character a backstory that is, of course, completely fictional about how she got to this island and why she's there and maybe some tragedy had happened. Not a real tragedy, but, you know, some backstory. And then she um, had a romance during this hurricane <laughs> as well with maybe the island hottie who, you know, he's a studly guy who's a carpenter and maybe he could help her with the animals, but she doesn't really trust him or like him because she's heard some rumors about him because that's how islands are. I mean, Key West, there are some rumors that go around and you, of course you believe them because, you know, you're a judgy person like me. And so that's another part of the story. You should not judge, no judgments. Maybe you shouldn't believe everything you hear. So she has to team up with this guy to help save the animals. So yeah. It's a wonderful thing to live by, no judgments. Exactly, although, you know, when we hear about her past life and some of the um, the things that she decided to do, you're kind of like, maybe she should have been a little more judgmental <laughs> about some of the people that she hung out Got with. Got her into a lot of trouble as well. Mm-hmm. But this was this is a way to introduce your readership to the little island, right? Exactly. And have it be fictionalized, of course. Yeah, I didn't want to use Key West itself because this is actually the first book in what's going to be a series about Little Bridge Island. Um, and I do intend to write about, you know, maybe some um, people on the island who are maybe the sheriff or the librarian of the island. And none of them are actually going to be based on the actual sheriff of Key West or the actual I librarian. I know the librarian. <laughs> of course you do. I do too. And so I don't want anybody to be like, hey, you wrote about me um, and, and be upset. And or, I the bookstore, kinda, or the bookstore owner Exactly. I know. Exactly. So I wanted to be able to write about them without them going, hey. Um, but you did or the write, mayor. You did, right. you did write a little introductory ebook right i did uh, yes with about a, yes a physical well, trainer tell me who, about that funny yes there's story an ebook called bridal boot camp which kind of is based on on a, <laughs> on a real bridal boot camp. yeah on my gym that doesn't exist anymore that was in key west where uh there was a there was a boot camp that was really highly populated by people all going to weddings that ended up being a bridal boot camp and um there was a police officer who ends up in the class because his his police chief 
is making him take a, he wanted him to take yoga for a disciplinary um, problem that he was having, which actually happened. I have a brother who's a police officer and his chief required all the police officers to take yoga because what they were facing every day was so um, upsetting out there. He thought it would be good for balance, which I thought that's an amazing thing. So in this book, the physical trainer has uh, a cop in her class of all would-be brides. So I thought that was hilarious. That's good. Um, once again, based on something that really happened. And that also happens on this island of Little Bridge, which the name is great because when that big hurricane hits, the Little Bridge is washed out. So everybody's stuck on this island. Um, and they have to all deal with each other. Well, this brings me to the question, because I know a little bit about your background. So you were born and raised in Bloomington, Indiana, yes. right? So how does, I know that you spend a lot of time in New York, yes. but how does a girl from Bloomington, Indiana <laughs> end up in Key West and loving Key West at the same time? Well, Bloomington, Indiana is a pretty small town. So it one of the things that I love about QS is it does have that really small town feel. And the great parts about it, like being able to just ride your bike around, especially, you know, at nighttime when the streets are all quiet and you smell that great smell of the night blooming jasmine, which weirdly in Bloomington, Indiana, you would get the smell of the honeysuckle in the summertime. I just love that. And Everybody knows each other. You know your neighbors, and there's very little crime. Um, everybody weirdly has that white picket fence, which and Blo- Bloomington's so a lot were, like that. So you were a townie. I was a townie. Yeah, Bloomington's my father was college. a college professor, so there was a lot of um, you know a lot of emphasis on reading and. You know, QS is a very literary your fa- town. What did your father teach? Well, my dad did teach quantitative business analysis, okay. which was not the most literary subject. But he was a huge reader. And so he actually read a book a day. Every day he would go down my. to the little the little bookstore and buy his favorite was spy novels, but also mysteries. And uh, I think he personally kept Robert Ludman, Ludlum <laughs> in uh in practice. Who lived the last part of his life on the west coast of Florida, I think. Oh, Robert yeah. Ludlum, I, oh, yeah. I mean, my dad loved him. And yeah. of course, John D. McDonald and sure. all those authors. And wow. So, of course, I would when he was done with his books, I would pick them up and then I would read them at a very young age. That's how I learned about sex, basically. But very <laughs> weird sex because it was like <laughs> yes. spies and, and, you know, very irresponsible oh, boy. detectives. And all those Pulp Fiction writers. It was writers. very hard-boiled, <laughs> yes. I was like, well, so this is how it is. Okay. <laughs> Well, then at least you were ready for Florida because a lot of them were Absolutely. living in Florida and wrote about Florida. Well, my dad grew up here. He actually oh, he went to Coral Gables High. So, your dad? Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. So no, your father did. grew up in Coral Gables. He did. University of Miami on oh. a basketball scholarship of all things, yes. Oh, my God. And then went on to Northwestern. What year did he graduate? You well, people always ask me that and I have no idea. How old been would he have been now? So I was born in... I hate, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Look, you can tell me. I'm, you're a <laughs> but kid. But he would have probably been going to high school here in the probably early 60s, late 50s. Wow. So. Because I was a little kid. I grew up on Miami Beach, and the University yeah. of Miami basketball team was a team that oh I followed gosh. Okay. all the yeah. time. I'm okay. going to have to look him up. I mean, I can't imagine he was not going to say he wasn't what was good. His, what was his name? Well, he was Cabot, Victor oh, Cabot. So you kept yeah. the same. Yes. So, so that's not your married name. That's your no, name. no, that's my yeah. Oh wow! And he actually, this is an interesting tidbit. His father uh, was Italian American, last name Caputo, and because of kind of anti-Italian sentiment, wow. kind of maybe in the forties and fifties, he changed his last name From to Caputo. Cabot. And I'm always so grateful that he just chose Cabot instead of something 
like Rockefeller because he <laughs> he was a musician and he really wanted like something glitzy and glamorous. Well, your and father like, sounds oh. like a fascinating yes, person. Yes, is is uh, he was the first I think. Now was your mom a big reader? As yes, well? my mom was um, a teacher and an English major in college, so we always wow. had books everywhere in the house. And going to the library was the big thing. We always did every week. And I am so interested in the fact that you knew you wanted to be a writer almost from the time you were like six oh, or seven yeah. years oh, old. Oh, yeah, but because both my parents knew so much about writing, they were like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Do you, ever remember, <laughs> do you ever remember not writing? No. Even before I could write, I drew stories, little narratives right. that were in pictures. And then as soon as I was able to write, I would add the words. So, yeah. That, but, I mean, it, I knew that it was going to be a very hard life. And so I, of course, went to college and I didn't study writing because I thought that would be impractical. You, you studied a practical thing like art. Yes. Which, <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I thought, oh, that will be, I will definitely get a job in art, which was very illuminating when I graduated. And I found out there were no art jobs. <laughs> so were you at Indiana? I or? was, where yeah. my father taught. So it was free. So they weren't, they couldn't yell at me too much for studying art. <laughs> because Tell I was like, you're the, not paying for it. I loved a movie and I'm, I always forget the name. What's Breaking that? Away. Breaking Away. Yeah, that's a great movie. Is it that accurate? Won. Is it? Absolutely. It it's really 100%. Is. And most of my family members are in that movie. They're um, actually as in extras, it? yeah. Oh, you look, my. I can tell you the scenes where you can see them. Oh. I always thought it would be fun to do at the, the QS Theater, do a Breaking Away screening and. Well, probably we should do Princess Diaries, but I'm always like, it would be so well, fun to do, do Breaking Away, yeah, um, and show people, there's my mom, she's that little blob, she got $25 for that scene. Oh, I love, um, yeah. I love that. It's a great uh, movie about movie. growing up in a college town, and, and maybe, you know, being a townie, though. And, and he pretends to be Italian, yeah, right, exactly. until he's it's a completely great disappointed. And by... a lot of people involved in that film were, right. obviously, from Bloomington. Well, film, film means a lot to you. I mean, I know that... We did a showing of the Princess Bride Princess movie Diaries, theater, yes. Princess Diaries. Princess Diaries. <laughs> it's okay. Bride. That uh, that's been on my mind because they're thinking of changing it and, or doing something. I with know, it. they're remaking it. Yeah, yeah. But so the Princess Diaries was being shown across the street. And I think yes, you called in. I did a Skype. And yeah, a it was Skype. fun. And, and that book is, uh, the, the film is as um, potent today. And it has an audience today, just like your book, the Princess, yes. the, the book of the Princess Diaries yeah. does. No, it's so. How is your audience? You, I mean, that book came out what in two thousand? Uh, two thousand one, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you've written. I, I said earlier that you've written close to seventy five or eighty five books. So, how has your audience? How have you seen your audience over these last twenty years develop from that book? It's been really fun to watch them kind of grow along with my books, which has been amazing. I just wrote an adult Princess Diaries book where Princess Mia is 26 and she's getting married. And I've got so much response from readers who are explaining to me that they're the same age and they're getting married now. I get wedding invitations in the mail all the time from my readers um, letting me know that they're now the age of my characters so it's been fun to have the characters grow along with the readers and so that's why it's been really fun to have to now write these adult i've been writing adult fiction all along right um but now the readers are just catching up and they're yeah, the same the, the ones who started with yes. your, the ones who started some with your them, YA yeah books. they're a little scandalized by the fact that there's some sex scenes or love scenes in the books but um i think that eventually they'll well i can say as a, as a, as a bookseller what you've done 
you know, I mean, I would put it in the, the, the same vein as the, you know, Harry Potter and what you've done to develop a renewed interest in reading for, for tweens and YA uh, yeah. folks and young kids yeah. I mean, who these come are, in looking yeah. for the next book. These are, re- these are mostly um, readers who've always been very devoted to, right. um, you know, as soon as the new book is coming out, running out to grab it. So they've always been. But um, it is, it's been really, really exciting. Now, I, I read somewhere that your princess, who was named in The Princess Diaries, would have been Princess Leia, maybe. <laughs> yes, you I'm are, a huge you are Star a Wars huge fan. Wars and that fan. was the book, well, I shouldn't say book. It was the movie that really got me into princess stuff. And, you know, the fact that she was this very feisty princess who led a rebellion against the Empire, um, that that was what really, and I guess I was probably 10 or 11 when that movie came out. And I was a devoted Star Wars fan fiction writer, I have to say. Oh, did you? Was, wow. Until my mom explained copyright law to me, and then I <laughs> realized I was never going to be able to get any of it published, which of course now that hasn't you can. stopped. Yeah, that hasn't stopped it some hasn't other stopped folks. a lot of people. <laughs> but um, but when I realized that, then I started creating my own worlds. And so really the Princess Diaries is basically, I mean, what I did. I created Genovia, my own planet. Well, of course it's a kingdom or a principality in um, Europe. And, but I mean, that all kind of started with Star Wars. I really credit George Lucas for <laughs> just igniting the imaginations of my generation. Of so kind many. of the way, yeah, uh, J.K. Rowling did with this new generation. Yeah. And, but, but so, so let's talk a little bit more about film. How, how were those adaptations in your mind? And what was it like working with them? What did you, it what was, was the process? It was, so, I mean, I had written books before The Princess Diaries. I had written um, historical romances, actually. My goal, actually, was to be an adult romance author. And then I just happened to write this book, The Princess Diaries, um, kind of as a fluke because my mom really was dating one of my teachers after my dad passed away, and I was kind of upset about it. And so writing, when you're a writer or anyone, I feel like if you put things down... Um, on on the page, you feel better about it. So I had started keeping a diary about my feelings about my mom dating this teacher that I had had. And of course, I was happy for her, but I was a little bit freaked out. And I gave it to my agent because I thought, well, I might as well make money on this. <laughs> if someone will publish it, that would be great. And she said, you know, I think this would be a good... Of course, I threw in the fact that the girl turns out to be a princess just to make it a little bit less about me, um, so no one would know. And she said, I think this would make a good YA book. And I was like, really? Because I really intended it to be for adults as a kind of joke book, like kind of like Eloise, you sure. know? And she said, no, I think, we can, I think we could sell this. And no one wanted to buy it. It was totally, according to many of the rejections, it was unsaleable. Um, and not appropriate for any children. But she had the foresight to send it out to Hollywood. And Whitney Houston's production company snapped it up right away. So before it was published? Before it was published. Wow. And um, I was very um, excited about that. But then when it finally was um, taken by an editor, I remember it was actually Avon. It was the HarperCollins, which right. is where my adult books are published now. The editor was like, well, you know... A lot of things get optioned, but they don't get made. So don't get too excited. And I was like, okay, yeah, you're probably right. So <laughs> I was still working my day job at NYU in a 700-bed freshman dorm. And the phone kept ringing on my desk. And it would be 
Whitney Houston's production company, which is Deborah Martin Chase, who, who I'm still working with today on, on a couple projects. And she, she would say, okay, Meg, well, you know, I just want to let you know that we have a director. Um, first of all, it's sold to Disney and we have a director and, and he is, um, someone who lives on the West coast. He lives in San Francisco and his little granddaughters live in San Francisco. And he, um, really wants to film the movie in San Francisco, even though the book is set in New York. Do you, do you think that would be okay? And I was like, I mean, I, who is it? And she said, well, it's Gary Marshall. And I was like, yes, that's, that's fine. And you know, the next day was she'd call sweet, and was he a sweet guy? He's adorable. He I mean, he's so sweet. Yeah. The, and if you watch the movie, his little grandkids are in the movie. Right. And um, one of them's in a wheelchair and they're getting Princess Mia's autograph. It's just so cute. And the same thing when she kept calling, she'd be like, Well, you know, in your book, the father is alive. Unfortunately, we're gonna have to kill him off in the movie. <laughs> And I was like, why? They're like, well, we have this actress who we want to play the grandmother, and she's a really big actress. And we really want to give her some of the dead father's lines. And I was like, well, who's the actress? She said, it's Julie Andrews. And I was like, oh, my God, kill him, kill him. It's fine. So that was that's what it was like. But still, I didn't believe they were actually making it until I got the money. And then I was like, okay, now I believe they're making it. And then I quit my job and went out to the premiere and it was amazing. It was oh. super fun and met everybody. And they're all just so nice. And Anne Hathaway was amazing. And yeah. she actually did the first three books on tape. So for oh, the audio books, oh, yeah, you can, um, you can hear Anne Hathaway doing. Well, Princess the cool Mia. thing is 20 years later, a bunch of kids who were reading the book and seeing the movie at that point mm -hmm. came and saw it again as Aww, adults and they brought their own kids oh as well, i know that's what's been so great they're best and you know a lot of them have gone on to become teachers and librarians and booksellers themselves and so they really are passing on the love of reading to well other i also people. think that that was one of the first you could call it a YA book, but it was really a it was really YA and adult. I mean, I yeah. found adults. There's some buying. very snarky things in a there. Lot <laughs> a lot of adults were buying that book. <laughs> when I walked into my first book signing for that book, and I saw how young they had like braces and they were tiny, I was like, "What is? Oh no, <laughs> this is not what I expected. These are very young." I mean, there's like a reference to French kissing. I think on the first page, I got a lot of mail, like very negative sure. mail from parents who had taken their kids to see the movie and then they thought it was going to be, you know, geared for six-year-olds and then they bought the book and they were like, this is not okay well, for we my should say that this is Banned Books Week right oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure. I mean, that book got banned a lot. I'm sure it, it more did. just got like thrown in the trash. I don't even think they officially <laughs> banned it. They're just like, nope. Well, you 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 know, over the last twenty years, it's been really remarkable to watch your career just blossom and people following, and and, and waiting for every new book to come out, no matter what it is, really. Oh, thank you. But you know what's interesting to me, just as a bookseller, and what I'm beginning to see, and I'm really interested to know what you think about it. This resurgence in romance. Oh, it's kind of remarkable. And it's young people. It's people under 21, 22, right. 23. Well, I think, yeah. And it's not the romance that we remember. It's not the Regency romance. Right. Well, I think, first of all, um, the the massive um, interest in YA has done a lot of that. Because if you look at YA, almost all of it is technically romance. <laughs> and so yeah. they, they don't necessarily, the readers don't necessarily want to admit it. All of it boils down to some kind of romance with maybe some adventure thrown in. But I also have to credit a lot of that to the romance industry itself has done a great job of encouraging people to understand that really that 
that industry is highest selling and also truly i mean what do we have in life that is enjoyable if not for romance well food right. I, we all <laughs> we all love food if you can combine food and romance which i did by marrying a chef um then you have it made but you know and also look at the times we're living in i mean right. life right now is so stressful and it's great to be able to sit down with a book where you know hopefully you're going to have a happy ending and you're going to see well, that's some what, people what, enjoying. What you just said happy ending. Yeah. It's really I mean, we all want the H E A, as they call it, the well, happily ever I after. Talked to, we had the summer. We had a whole bunch of interns and young, mostly women, and I was asking them what they're reading, and they were talking about the romance, yeah. but it was the romance that had like certain qualities to it, <laughs> yeah. and the happy ending was absolutely yeah. important. I think I think it's happen. it can bum you out, especially nowadays if you're reading a book and you invest your time in it, and then somebody gets killed in a mudslide at the end, <laughs> which I know has personally happened to me when I was reading a book. I was like, wait, what? This is the ending? He <laughs> dies in a mudslide? That's very much not worth my time. I want my... and Because we have such busy lives and we want our entertainment payoff to be worth our time. And when the author, for whatever reason, decides to kill off one of the major characters in a ridiculous way, it's... So who are some of the other writers who are doing it well, like you? Oh my, you know, I hate when I get asked this question because I, I always spend all my time thinking, okay, here's who I'm going to recommend. And then as soon as I get into the interview, I forget. Um, there is amazing, I, I think, um, for historicals, Sarah McLean, uh, Lorraine Heath, um, I just read some really funny, I mean, we're entering this golden age of rom-coms, which right. has gone under many names. It's always been around, but right now they're calling them rom-coms. I just read a great one called um, Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Talia Hibbert, which is coming out, I think, next month. So I, I get to read you great sneak peeks. Um, I just am also reading a great one by an author named Mia Sosa called, the, the it's a great title, The Best the worst best man so it's a great funny story about uh, it the title says it all he's the worst best man um so there's just so many great ones that are coming out and that also are out now there's one that's not technically i consider it a romance but uh i don't know if you're gonna have her here renee uh, denfeld who last year wrote gosh the child finder and then this year there's a kind of a sequel called um the butterfly girl it's a little bit um, also a mystery. So I really enjoyed it because, again, there's a happy ending. But I know. It's <laughs> amazing. It's really great payoff at the end. So there's just been some great, great books coming out that um, and what's really so, satisfy the What's so cool about it, too, is that it, there, there's there's – there, there aren't like two camps. It's like people are reading romance, they're also reading other things too. Yeah, I think mysteries are mystery, and, yeah. well, mysteries as well as literary novels yeah. and other kinds yeah. of things. And Definitely. you come from Key West, which is kind of a city of writers. Absolutely. And yeah. you're one of those writers there. So who are some of the people, they don't have to be the Key West writers of today, but who are some of those writers that spark with you to some extent? Well, I mean, obviously Judy Blum has always been one of my favorites. And um, her books aren't always the kind of books that we're talking about where they have a happy ending. Um, one of my favorites is a very dark book that has been banned everywhere called Blubber. And that has been one of my wow. favorite books since I was a little kid because it's about, I feel like it's such a realistic depiction of how kids really are because they can be mean. <laughs> and it's I think it's almost like a little 
chart of how of how mean kids can really be and how parents just don't even understand what it's really like. Um, and I reread that book all the time. Was that a book you read when you were oh, very yeah. young? And, oh, yeah. yeah. My mom was great because she just bought me also, of course, to me library, but she never said you can't read something. And I mean, I so I was the kid who brought forever the the very steamy <laughs> Judy Bloom. Her... I was that kid, and I was the kid who got in trouble for bringing that to school. And my mom was like, "What's the big deal?" You know, I was only in the fourth grade, so I had the book with the you know the sex scene in it. And um, I'm the one who's the other mother called out my mom for letting that happen but she she was always like what's the you know she's got a problem with it she'll come to me and talk to me about it and i i never had a problem with anything because i loved it i was reading my dad's sex scenes and i was like this is awesome (laughs) i love it and i of course turned out i think okay i think so too Um, forged i like what happened i like the fact that you're forged with like this pulp fiction and judy bloom together (laughs) I love the idea. I can only well, imagine. I, can, I don't even want to yeah, go there. Yeah, things were crazy at my house. <laughs> I, I can guess. imagine what that's um, like. But I loved science fiction and fantasy as well. So I had a lot of. I mean, one of my favorite books as a kid, which is insane, was the Fantastic Voyage by Isaac Asimov, oh, sure. which is a novelization of a film. But I had a problem as a kid um, reading. I was a very reluctant reader at first. So being able to see the film and then being able to read the book based on the film was very helpful to me. So when I hear um, parents complain about kids reading quote-unquote junk, it really makes me mad because for some kids it's very difficult. So now with the big, um, you know, the surge in graphic novels. Well, you're doing a graphic novel. I am, yeah, I'm doing a Black Canary. Tell me about that a little bit. So DC Comics uh, sent out a call that they were looking for YA authors and middle grade authors to um, write especially girl-centric or female superheroine-centric graphic novels. Um for their line, which is not Marvel, it's DC. So I said I would be interested in doing that, and I looked through their line of um, superheroines, and I found this one called Black Canary, which really interested me because I think it's, you know, women having a voice right now especially is so important, and Black Canary's superpower is only that she has a supersonic voice. She has a supersonic canary cry that can decimate armies. She's super loud. And when I was a kid, I was often accused of being too loud and told to quiet down. And my uh, my actual middle school principal came up to me in this cafeteria one day and told me I was the loudest girl in the entire cafeteria and I needed to shut up. And I was <laughs> like, what? So I loved this character. So I said, I would love to write about her as a middle school kid and actually have this happen to her so I could get my revenge and actually get money for it. And it was great. So it's really hard, though. I did not realize how hard it is to write a graphic novel because you have to describe every single one of those little panels when you're the writer. That's I oh, thought so that, you describe them and I did then not someone know. draws it. Yes. Ah. So you have to write every single thing and what it looks like and from what angle and what they're wearing and what obviously what they say. Um, so that project took much longer than I thought it was going to, but it was really fun. And, and when will that be out? That's going to be out next month. It'll oh, be out on the 28th, I think. Yeah. Really, really exciting. October, yeah. So it was really fun, but um, one of the things that does make me mad is when, te- not and this is not all teachers, but occasionally you do hear from parents complaining because their kid will have read a graphic novel and the teacher will say, well, that doesn't count as reading. It's not, yeah, it's not reading because it doesn't, it, it doesn't have enough words. You know, the best readers that I've ever met are readers who started out. And now I've been doing the podcast for a while. And I can't tell you how many writers have started out because they read comics. Absolutely. That's exactly where it yeah. all started. Your brain them. works the same way, whether yeah. you're reading a comic book 
or a book with just words. It's yeah. visualizing the page just the same. And to exactly. develop the love of reading, you shouldn't have to be forcing books on people. No, and that will just make them hate it. Yeah, I, <laughs> it no, will I make agree them with actually you. hate reading. Most so, definitely. Yeah. That's what they want. That's definitely, definitely true. And the other thing which is so interesting to me is that you've written so many books, but you really didn't publish until you were in your 30s or just at 30, right? Yeah. Was your first... Well, so what happened was I didn't think that I could, you know, be a quote-unquote writer, so I didn't try until my dad passed away kind of suddenly and... That's when I realized if there's something you want to do, you really need to get out there and at least try because, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You, you could die. I never sent any of my books and I had written lots of books um, just at home and let them sit around. Um, but I didn't want to get rejected. I thought, oh, that could be the worst thing. If I got rejected, it will ruin my dreams and it'll crush me. And as soon as I got home from the funeral, I started sending out my books and, um, I totally got rejected. <laughs> like I have books sitting around in my house that got rejected so many times, but it didn't crush me because that's totally not the worst thing that can happen to you. I was like, I would get these rejections and I'd be like, well, they're a loser. I can't believe they didn't like, I have the whole series of books about this um, Indiana high school basketball coach who solves crimes. That was what I was writing well, back I actually then. like that idea. Thank you. They're horrible. But <laughs> I, love I know nothing about basketball, <laughs> but I thought that I did. And I've used parts of them in like all my, I've, I've since taken parts of them. In fact, one of the books I'm writing right now has a, never mind, but it's going <laughs> to be really good. Um, but I didn't quit because my husband would say, you know, I love to play golf. And if I got letters from people telling me, you're a terrible golfer, I wouldn't quit playing golf because I like it. So exactly. you shouldn't quit writing. If you like it, just keep going. And I did. And finally, I got an agent. And finally, I got published. We'd love to hear something from the new book. No no judgments. Okay. <laughs> I've never read anything from this book before. So I'm going to pick a passage. I feel like I should pick out something very hot, but... You can do it. It's uh, I can, I can. we're on the HBO of podcasts. Um, okay, I'm not going to. I'm just going to pick out a. This will. This is very much um, South Florida, right before a hurricane. So I'm going to read this. It's very um, typical for those of us who have experienced a tropical weather system going through. When I stepped out to get the paper, Daniela insisted on getting home delivery of the Gazette, Little Bridge's local paper, and I never complained because every morning over my coffee, I liked reading about which of my customers at the cafe had been busted for DUI. I could see that some of the pink and white blossoms on the frangy-pangy had been sent skittering across the courtyard, piling up against our front door where they lay like inert ballerinas, their tutus deflated. The mockingbird was still on his usual perch in the treetop, however, singing his heart out, hoping to attract a mate. So things couldn't be that bad. The staff of the newspaper had decided to go for a less than subtle approach with their morning headline. Get out, screamed the front page with a photo of motorists lined up along the highway out of Little Bridge. The morning news shows weren't any less emphatic. Basically, anyone in the path of Hurricane Maryland was still on a road to their demise. There was little to no news from Cuba over which the slow-moving storm had just passed. All power and communication from there had been lost. The eye of the storm would soon be chugging its way across the Florida Straits on a direct course for the U.S. We were, as my mother had assured me, 
all going to die. Thank you so much, Meg, You're for being so on the You're so welcome. Life. Thank you so much for having me. 